Hello, and welcome to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. I'm Jim Paolino, founder and CEO of Lodestar Software Solutions. On this podcast, I'm going to be talking to leaders in the mortgage and real estate industries. Our goal is to talk about current events, interesting things from their end of the industry, and anything else that we feel is fascinating. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Lodestar's Lending Leaders. I have a very special guest today, my friend Adam Chardry, president of Funding Shield. Um, Adam is someone we were joking before we met uh, on the rooftops of New York at an industry conference. Uh, like I said, I've probably met most of uh, my podcast guests. Um, and Adam has a really excited for today's podcast because he has a good, um, great industry background, been in banking, been in the mortgage industry for about 20 years now. Companies like Goldman, Greenpoint Credit Corp, RBS, Greenwich Capital, Pelican Point, and most recently Funding Shield, which is an anti-fraud solution in the industry. So a lot of, lot of things that I think we can cover. It's going to be really fun. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. Yeah. And um, so to get started, kind of what got you to the point where you are now? I know going from kind of the um, structured finance world, the more traditional eye banking world to being, you know, a boots on the ground vendor like, like myself. Well, I, I, um, I think it was kind of a natural inclination, but, you know, first and foremost, thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's great to, you know, interact in this new, uh, kind of digital virtual medium. Yeah. I can't wait till we can do this in person, um, yeah. again. Uh, but, but anyways, with that background, a great question. Uh, it's kind of funny. I got to a point where I think I was like a lot of folks in investment banking. Um, you get to a point where you kind of feel like you, you've learned and extrapolated a lot of kind of that understanding of that finance world, uh, of the strategy side of the business from the overall capital formation and, Mm-hmm. You know, debt and equity kind of placement piece. And, and it was, I had gotten to a point in my career where I felt that I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe it was, you know, somewhat, you know, romantic and foolish in terms of thinking like, hey, I want to control my own destiny or whatever it may be. Yeah. But um, I, I definitely felt that, you know, I kind of had taken out from, from those experiences uh, a good portion of what I wanted to. And, and I recall having lots of conversations with friends, family, uh, and most importantly, mentors from just a whole host of different industries. Um, this and on the outside of this industry, you know, from completely different places and around the globe. And I really was ready to go anywhere in the world. And mm-hmm. um, I had some opportunities abroad, and uh, ultimately um, decided to team up with Ike, um, who's our CEO and chairman, uh, because I had known of Ike. Uh, he was pretty well regarded in, in global finance, and he had a human capital management, which is a, a very uh, Nice way of saying he worked with the boards uh, and heads of the investment banking committees as well as private equity funds to figure out who the right people were. So I knew I, everyone kind of knows like Wall Street. So uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I was actually out here visiting some folks at Emco uh, for an opportunity to uh, for for a you know a role on the private equity side of the business. Um, I kind of clicked with Ike and, and I, I stayed true to myself, saying, "Hey, I want to really start something from the ground up." So yeah. really, the process of going from kind of high finance, structured finance to uh, being in funding field came because I, I decided, hey, I want to I want to be every department. I want to be accounting, sales, finance, marketing, uh, which I love. I know you do too, but you know, it's, yeah. it, it's part of the journey. So uh, ultimately that's kind of how I got into it, but all jokes aside, um, and, and this kind of ties into some things we're going to talk about. It's all, it's all a circular conversation. Everyone's yeah. kind of like, I do remember when I was working on some some portfolios for Her Majesty's Treasury, which is the equivalent of the Fed in the UK mm-hmm. for RBS during the workout days. Um, some pretty basic questions that the regulators, as well as kind of the 
their equivalent of the Department of Treasury was asking about U.S. mortgages. And it was really hard to explain what was really in these pools of mortgages or securities because yeah. there wasn't good data. Um, mm-hmm. There was, you know, if you wanted to figure out what was in a pool, like it would take you literally years to have mm-hmm. millions of dollars to have somebody to diligence 10% of the pool, let alone the entire pool. And so I feel a lot of those thoughts came around, hey, I worked at a bank that was going through uh, like a lot of banks distress, and I was representing as a FIG banker, a big banker, it's called, where I'm a banker for banks, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of similar positions on billions and tens of billions, and at one point, hundreds of billions of mm-hmm. mortgage collateral or other real estate related collateral in the US, trying to explain it to Japanese investors or Malaysian investors or you know Middle Eastern sovereign mm-hmm. funds, why they should trust this asset class. And it was really hard because it's always easier when you have right. data. Um, and that kind of what kind of got us into thinking about funding field and where we sit in the journey of, of the closing mm-hmm. and being able to provide additional assurances and validations. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later in our conversation. Right. Well, uh, you, you first reminded me of one of my favorite phrases that uh, entrepreneur is French for brain condition. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I definitely understand, you know, the, the desire to want to kind of start something and, and do that. Um, so, you know, I guess you just woke up one day and said, I want to start a business, but I want to do wire fraud, right? Like where <laughs> out of all of, you know, all of the things you were dealing with, the views that you had, what, how do you settle on that as the, the problem to solve? Well, I think it's, um, it's easy for a lot of entrepreneurs and, and, and folks in tech specifically to get kind of, uh, get so excited about an idea they have as opposed to being responsive to a market need um, or market void. And I think that was really where the the journey with Funding Shield came about by really taking those relationships that Ike and I had garnered over many years and Mm -hmm. some pretty awesome situations and some pretty precarious situations during their their financial journey as, you know, banks and financial institutions, mortgage, you know, mortgage investors, mortgage funds, mortgage originators uh, and knowing some of those principles and saying, hey, you know, we have an opportunity to deliver, you know, some some sets around closing. And you, you look at where e-closing is now, it's top of mind. Pretty much every seminar now, they're talking about settlement and closing. And no one would have thought about that two years ago. And we were pushing that agenda. And I know you were too, about there's a lot of risk there. There's also a lot of opportunity there to make things better, more transparent, et cetera. Um, but to get back to the question, it really came down to this uh to, to this this need uh, that the market had around actual source data being brought to the to the forefront, um, you know, just in time processing, which if you think about it's pathetic uh, for us as an industry to be talking about this. Because I remember my first business school class in like you know the late '90s, we were talking about this in every other industry. So I'm glad we're catching up. But some of the challenges that you see the operators pushing back on, well, why do I need this? It's those folks in two or three years, I, I truly believe are going to be in a severely impaired, you know, position uh, relative to the adapters, mm-hmm. not the early adapters, the true adapters who are saying, okay, I'm going to look at how I do things and I'm going to really think about the best way to do them to equip my brain trust, my teams to do things better. And so I think that's really where Funding Shield came from. It came from a market need and, and really talking uh, to our contacts in the market and saying, how do we scale this though? Not just like deliver a solution for a one-off client and that takes time and it takes a lot of investment and it takes a lot of uh, patience um and hitting the market right which is why we're really lucky to have a a leader like ike's who's done so much kind of from that entrepreneurial building businesses perspective where i didn't have that experience so it's a really good partnership uh as well as a growth opportunity and learning opportunity for me 
I feel well, like it's gone decently well now. I can say looking back. I mean, definitely uh, from you know everything so. Funding Shield has done over the last few years. You know, it's it's tough to you know go a week and not hear about uh, award you guys are winning or some other announcement or, uh, or something that. like that. that. So that's that's all we, we just want to make sure the clients are taking care and of. And we're uh, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that you saw the looming purchase market about three four years ago anyway, and that's why you you know <laughs> did that too to position yourself for everything that's hopefully coming uh, up. But, uh, um, you, know, you know, over the next year. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I know the purchase, I mean, look, the, the, all these things that come and go, they swing um, finance, you know, the real estate market relative to the financing market around the real estate market, right? All yeah. those things come and go, the regulatory shifts come and go. And I think that's, yeah. that's really, you know, part and parcel of the beginning of any business is how do you build a sustainable business across multiple cycles? Uh, mm-hmm. How do you build a business that has a, a service component that really delivers an ROI metrics that a client wants, yeah. right? How do I really save money? Not because mm-hmm. I prevented a fraud, but because I help you do things better. And that's a big part of what we've been able yeah. to do. And our clients, you know, touch wood, stick with us and stay with us right. because of that fact, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's kind of the, the shift of what we're seeing in the overall market, who the winners are going to be in this kind of yep. emerging tech slash vendor space for mortgage and real estate uh, yeah. as well. I think you bring up a really good point that, you know, all too often entrepreneurs have kind of the the field of dreams approach, as I like to call it, where, you know, this is a cool technology. I'm in love with it. Let's, I have a hammer, let's find the nail, right? Whereas, you know, if you start with the problem, you're a lot more likely to um, get people's buy-ins because you're dealing with a big pain point. So I guess my question for you in dealing with top lenders, what is the initial pain when they come to you? Is it, I have 20,000 potential title agents. They all have different things that they're dealing with. I don't know how to control this risk. Or is it, you know, a little bit more nuanced or different than that? Yeah, there, there's pieces, uh, there's components of what you brought up, which is just this vast, you know, kind of population mm-hmm. of, of relationships that you have to get around. And there's different ways people look at this. One is, well, the title insurer should be covering this. And we understand the title insurance companies, like most you know, insurance companies, they cannot make those representations because if they right. did, on the conduct of you know each agent or errors and omissions on each agent, they're basically saying, I'll hold a you know policy against it. Yeah. But really at the end of the day, the lender's job is to kind of diligence this diligence and stuff because of our, our friends of the CFPB as well as the OCC who say, hey, mm-hmm. you're the deep pockets. Uh, and whether or not they want to admit it, um, a lot of the liability start stops with them, right? Yeah. They're the easiest target to go after, right. um, especially in this kind of post-crisis world. Uh, and so a lot of a lot of the motivation is, yeah, regulatory driven and risk driven. Hey, I want to make sure I know who I'm working. The flip right. of it is they want to avoid that six sigma punch in the gut underbelly risk, which is if they get hit with a wire fraud. I tell you right now, if you lose two hundred to five hundred thousand dollars of working capital overnight, plus the cost to re- reinstate your insurance, plus the cost of investigation and bringing yeah. third parties in. Forget the big guy. Think about the mid cap player. Yeah. Right, who still has maybe you know twenty thousand or fifteen thousand title companies that's you know not doing forty, mm-hmm. fifty, hundred billion a year. They're doing ten billion a year in production. Yeah. That's a significant portion of their working capital. Enough yeah. to the point that if they have to dip into it, depending on what their ownership structure is, it could cause problems with them in terms of how they operate, access the warehouse lines, access yeah. their capital resources, covenants they may have uh, yeah. for investors, all sorts of things that people don't even think about, which is a world I came from. Mm-hmm. Where I said, and that's kind of how I looked at this thing. Look, you know, people spend a lot more money on insurance that gets them nothing than yeah. buying something that actually saves them money 
does things better, does things cleaner, makes sure they're working with title companies. And by the way, it also helps the title companies too, because we're making sure they get the funds and that they're, they're the ones that are actually going to be able to work on the file because when the money goes missing, there is no closing. Somebody has to step up with the money again. So maybe the owner of, you know, a big, uh, a big uh, IMB or mid cap IMB, he can step in or she can step in and say, here's a check. I can write a 500,000 or check to cover the short. Let's keep on moving. Most lenders are not in that position, right? right. The vast majority, if you think about the numbers, of course, we're talking about the kind of the bottom three quartiles of the market. Well, then it's interesting too, because you even, you know, a $2 billion originator, right? Um, in the world you're talking about is a small player, but if an issue happens with that with that bank, all of a sudden they're the evil empire, right? Because there, there's an article that invariably gets written yep. where, you know, some home buyer, unfortunately lost all of the money that they have saved up for a home, right? And this evil bank is yep. the one responsible for it, even though we just have some hacker sitting somewhere else in the world yep. over there stealing all of that money. So you know, they're both they're both too small to handle it, but also the reputational risk that they have of something like that. And those stories are always heartbreaking. Too. And this brings up the second point. You said, well, why are people doing this? It's exactly what you just said. It is, yeah. I may have a great internal process, but how do I know that it's being enforced, applied, and used on every loan, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like that whole funding control part that we've been talking about pretty openly in the market where yeah. we lead in that, right? I mean, yeah. our clients care about us as much from a closing agent diligence perspective as they do from final fund delivery to the warehouse lenders as well as the reps they make to the mm-hmm. warehouse you know, lenders, which they're required to make. So mm-hmm. when you think about it, that's another big piece of this. The CFO now cares, the controllers now care, but right. you know, what's my process? What's my lockdown workflow? So it's compliance, it's risk, and it's also yeah. operation. Um, because mm-hmm. ultimately, like you just said, you can't close the yeah. mortgage and you can't take these hits. And one's enough to really put a company yeah. in a really bad position. And so if, you, if you're talking to a chief operating officer or a chief compliance officer at one of those mid-cap banks, What's their nightmare scenario? Is it that $500,000 hit? Is that re- reputational risk? Like what's the thing that's keeping them up at night? Yeah, it's it's a combination of those two. I mean, those are the mm-hmm. two primary ones. If the regulatory piece comes in and they have a bad audit, um, they'll probably deal with it post facto be a little bit more reactive, especially in that smaller profile. But the bigger ones, they can't have that, right? They just can't have, you know, a, a state banking inspector come in and say that you're not meeting their requirements of diligence on third-party risk. That's a big problem for a big lender, and it could actually impact a whole host of other representations they have in the market because they have to be speedy clean. Sometimes the mid-cap and small-cap players kind of say, yeah, I'm going to pay a little loose and I'll fix it post-facto. Problem is, fixing it after the fact is a very expensive ordeal. It's very costly, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and it's a one-time fix. So you might be able to go out and, you know, try to uh, compile a bunch of data but that data is latent the second you compile it. Tomorrow you come in, everything's changed and you're not really doing anything at the loan level. So yeah, you pick the box from a compliance perspective or yeah. you know, kind of reached out to some database, to a data bank, but you're really not incorporating anything from a risk management perspective, fraud prevention perspective, yeah. nor from an operational workflow perspective. So the CEO looks at this and says, well, every time I close, I mean, it's a new risk profile, right? Who was good yesterday is not good today. I have to yeah. make something good today. And so right. how do I do that? And how do I approach the market that way yeah. in an environment where you just said it yourself? The hackers come in. You don't know who's going to get hacked. Yeah. I think Netflix got hacked with this week. So did like the Federal Reserve. I mean, 
So well, then like, you have to like even <laughs> one title agent, right? They're not just going to have one bank account for wiring too. They're going to have one per state or what other subsidiaries or <laughs> that's going to change. So now you're dealing with tens of thousands of these in some cases. Yeah, um, we, we do the math and we think the churns anywhere between based on our, our kind of, because we just have a humongous database of constantly yeah. updated, right? It's the largest one out there. And it, it's, you know, it's anywhere between 10 to 15% because of a consolidation in the banking space alone. Yeah. Um, you think about all these community banks and small banks out there where a lot of, you know, these title companies are might be one of the largest depositors in the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a hundred million dollar bank and this guy has an average daily balance of four to five million. You know, that's four to five percent of the overall yeah. deposits on hand. Right. Mm-hmm. So you think about those dynamics, that right. bank is bought out by, you know, first Tennessee or a, you know, the United Bank seems to be buying yeah. all these guys and kind of, you know, uh, Georgia and Florida and, mm-hmm. and all these sort of, you know, southeastern states. And it's natural. Banking consolidation makes sense, right? It's going to continue right. to happen. But every time that happens, it's another great entry point for a hacker or a fraudster uh, to come in or for there to be operational gaps, right? People don't update the instructions. So now money is going over here, an account that's blocked. It gets mm-hmm. stuck inside, inside the Fed application system saying, I can't apply to account. It doesn't exist. Where do I apply it? Where do I apply it? Now you wait four days to get the money back. You yeah. send it over here. That's not a cheap person doing that work. I'm telling you right now, you're not calling your intern or your first year analyst that came out of school, right? And saying, hey, go call the Federal Reserve Bank or go call the FBI and figure this yeah. thing out. You're, you're bringing your legal team in, you're yeah. bringing your senior managers. It's expensive resources. That's the other part we always have to remind our right. clients is when you look at the ROI, remember when things go wrong, you're not sending your lowest cost person in. Yeah. But when you're using us 190th of the time, it's the the line staff that's basically click, clicking the button, making sure things where it needs to be and move on, right? And yeah. I'm sure you sell the same way and a lot of our, our, our peers sell the same way. Um, but the idea yeah. is that it can't all be automated. There has to be some level of touch, which is important in our in our business. I think tech and touch is very important. I yeah. think that's where Uber's got it wrong. I think there's a lot of other companies that have not found that right paradigm yet, um, but their models were built on a yeah. capital base and approach that was designed to not incorporate that kind of customer service element. Mm-hmm. It was really built around, I can deliver a service well, and when it doesn't go well, I'm sorry, yeah. I have to refund you or I don't. Mm-hmm. I like the way you, <laughs> you phrase that tech and touch. Um, gonna have to have to use that. And that's something we talk about a lot is, is this a technology business? Is this a relationship business? And I think the answer is both. It has um, to be. And you know, going, going forward, how do you, see companies handling that relationship and do you think that's why you know the smaller firms maybe if you're doing 100 million origination a year even lower do you think they'll always be around because of that or are they just going to get priced out because of the cost of compliance i think that there are some advantages very on a very micro basis to the business model that they they have advantages especially in the purchase market cycle that i think we can all understand which is Mm -hmm. those deeply rooted local relationships down to uh, kind of the realtor and the real estate market level. Um, they've also been through multi-cycle. A lot of these these companies are family-owned, um, so they're deeply rooted in those communities. So there are, there are some advantages. It's it's really the tweeners, right, that I think are going to have to figure out their mm-hmm. kind of who they are, what they are. If they've been too reliant on kind of yeah. one business line or the other, and they're going to have to either thinking about teaming up with some of those folks, or we're seeing it less so in the California market because it's a very unique market here, as I'm sure you guys can understand and, and from a capital and cost perspective, as well as a regulatory perspective. Mm-hmm. But in other markets, uh, what we tend to see and what we're starting to see a lot of is, uh, you know, kind of mid-cap guys starting to scoop up some smaller family-owned businesses that are coming to kind of generational 
yeah. sale points or transition points, just like any family business comes to, um, where how do I translate this, you know, steady, great business that's been producing, you know, a billion or 500 million or 300 million of, of production every year, supporting a staff of 50 mm-hmm. uh, people that have been with me forever. How do I translate that and extend it? And there's not always a great kind of uh, opportunity to kind of translate into right. something that's kind of more corporately run and governed and, you know, that transition to sell. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for a lot of the mid cap players in the market. That's kind of what we're seeing. Um, hopefully that answers the question. So kind of, yeah, absolutely. Just that, that consolidation yeah, right at sure. the end of the day. Yeah. And that's something we're seeing a lot, just kind of not only M&A activity, but talk of, you know, what's happening in the industry. I think my time, my entire time in this industry over the last 10 years, um, there's always that looming, oh, the small players getting pushed out. And yep. it's never truly happened. And I think there's always going to be a place for the reasons that, that you mentioned. Yeah. And if you're dealing with a very large player, then obviously technology-wise, they have technology departments, they have developers, they have all these things that the small people can't. But how yeah. are the big people caring about the relationship and what are they doing to maintain that? Yeah, so that's a, a great one. I mean, I think the the integration and, and, and kind of interpolation points are a lot, mm. in some ways, are, it's a lot easier because they're thinking about the problem from a taking a step back and looking at the problem more holistically in many mm-hmm. senses, but they have to, um, given the sheer volume that comes through. So, you know, we have a couple of clients that are hundred billion plus originators, right? There's, there's only about 10, 15 of those in the country, right? And so mm-hmm. with those sort of relationships, um, the key is uh, very good tech, crisp tech, ability to use the automation and data calls back and forth to construct the right process flow. Uh, that gives them the right milestones to look at relative to how they look at their production. They look at their, their risk uh, mm-hmm. as well. So that's, that's kind of one piece of it. Um, but I think the, the other big piece of the, the larger guys is they do expect to have a certain uh, level of responsiveness um, mm-hmm. if anything goes off the rails or if there's any exceptions, right? So the beauty of what we have is given our, our kind of network so large, our data is so rich, we're now writing a, an index that we're, you know, publishing. The next one is going to be, uh, you know, shared uh, kind of in a couple of weeks here for the, you know, the April launch. So in time, I'm not sure how that's going to, you know, impact the timing relative to this podcast, but basically mm-hmm. uh, mid second week of April, Housing Wire is going to be publishing our, our wire and title fraud index. Mm-hmm. We've gotten down to a level where we can pretty much look at a client's production and say, if you're a commercial lender, a hard money lender, a resi lender in these states, and these are the sort of I, you know, kind of independent title agents relative to attorney mix that you have, we have a sense of we can price it at this price because we know how much handholding we have to do. Mm-hmm. Because not everything is automated. Now there are spikes, right? For instance, you know, there's spikes in the number of CPL issues. There's spikes in the mm-hmm. number of representations and licensing issues that come and go yeah. uh, around certain times of the year. Um, or because of some other macro events that are outside of uh, our control. But long story short, it is incredibly important to show up to a client that's a top 10 player in IMB space, bank space, any space, mm-hmm. and be able to say, cheers, I'm going to be able to handle and triage many of your issues. And we've gotten a great team to do that and the right tools for them to be able to, mm-hmm. to do that in a way that we don't need thousands of people or hundreds of people. Right. We can do a very well-equipped, smart staff member who can hit it and take care of our clients. Yeah. So, and this will be out mid-April, right? Kind of in, in line with yeah. that. So, so looking at the kind of report that you mentioned um, that's coming out, what are those biggest risk factors then? Like what makes a certain vendor 
more risky? Is it a smaller vendor? It's not necessarily smaller or large, larger. I, I don't have to. I wouldn't say it has to do with the size of the vendor. I think it has to do with the overall channels, um, some of their internal uh, internal controls, and I think the biggest one is, uh, you know, who are they interfacing with? What sort of transactions are they doing? What sort of uh, email system they're operating on? Like for, from a micro title company perspective, and then from a taking a step back is is it, it really comes down to. Sometimes the guys that have higher flow are actually targeted more because there's more opportunities for the hackers to try to go and hit. Um, so <laughs> it, you can't look at it. It, it yeah. kind of it doesn't really matter the size of their shape. I think the direct underwriter kind of operations they tend to have a little bit of a more of a corporate approach around security and everything else. It's a little bit you know if you're going to be part of our team, you have to use our mail servers, our firewalls, our VPN policy. Right. A lot of title companies are still on Yahoo Mail, AOL Mail, as I'm sure you know. And it really it's sad to see when they're pushing back on requests for data and we're sending secure email. They're saying, no, no, we don't use email. Just send us a fax. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, yeah, like you're trying to move at a snail's pace in a market with just in time processing and e-close where right. things are going like this. And now you're asking for faxes yeah. because you're not willing to get off an AOL server that's an easy one that the title insurer should say, you're not allowed to be on my platform unless you have yeah. a email system. That should happen today. Like it should have happened two years ago. And I had a, I had a title company tell me once that their owner doesn't like the internet. What do you do with that? Stuff? About back, like what are we talking well, about? And I mean, and I think, and it's, get I think it's, yarn. get me some yarn, Jim. Give me some um, yarn. No. Smoke signals. No, let's go do like this. That. Right. <laughs> I think, um, but and then for them, it's just not in their best interest at the end of the day, because, you know, what good is cybersecurity insurance if you're not doing things online? Um, I had a situation where one of our clients, um, they got an email that they thought was suspicious about changing wiring information. So they yep. called the number on the email, sounded fine, um, changed the wiring information and bam, 80 grand gone, just like that. And it was social engineering. So you know what? Sorry. Your insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah. And that and that's the other issue is like, how do you, that's the the blocking and tackling, right? I mean, uh, you know, you can use a sports analogy, you can use a building analogy, you can use so many things that like, when you approach a project, do you just kind of go into it? No, like you go into it thinking about the sequence of events to make things work best to mitigate risk. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the, the model has really worked is because the people that get what we do and the people that spend the time to sit with us to go through a demo go, oh, this is the difference between what you're doing and kind of what we could do on our own or what we're right. taking blindly as representations because they're like, well, I always used to say in banking is it's great when you, you underwrite a bond, but there's a difference in being un underwritten by a $10 million player and a $2 million, you know, small yeah. Uh, local broker dealer down the street is because it, they have the capital to stand behind it. Well, not everyone's going to have oodles of capital, right, for this mm -hmm. for the business. So we, we look at the insurance policies, but you just said. Now, yeah. if we look at those insurance policies and you really read them, basically the risk that we're talking about is not covered. And no one wants to talk about it, but yeah. the cost of that insurance is also five or 10 times what it was pre-COVID. So and then, yeah. you think about it, it's like, what are we... The only approach that's out there that makes sense for the insurance community, forget title insurance, I'm talking like broadline corporate yeah. coverage insurance or cyber you know, security, right. mainline insurance covers, right? Coverage is really thinking about prevention solutions, uh, solutions that are, are rooted in improving uh, policies and procedures and, and enforcing those procedures. Because 
it, it's it's like the old hey if you get in a car accident and you have a medical uh, medical uh, issue and you didn't wear your seatbelt some and it's found some insurance policies auto insurance policies won't cover you because it's like why the hell weren't you wearing your seatbelt it would have prevented ninety percent of the cost that we had not have to take let alone the damage to your your body and your your mm. person so it's like those basic basic things that it's it's weird to say that to people where you're like okay would you put your kids on a bus right. a school bus if uh would you like it better if the the school bus driver got a ventilator check and it's like the old one that we had to do when we first started selling yeah now people understand the risk because we all see it every day you should do that marketing you're just the mortgage seatbelt i like that <laughs> mortgage seatbelt <laughs> just you and you and i driving the bus yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll be a fun one <laughs> yeah no it's uh i mean it's it, it's so true and i think um it's going to be interesting to see how the industry comes around. And, and I guess that gets me to my next question of looking forward, what are the technologies or the things that you see are, are great areas of concern? You mentioned e-closings and digitization, yeah. you know, AI is always out there. Like what, what do you think the, the mortgage companies that are the most forward thinking right now are really going to be diving into? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it is, uh, you know, they've done a lot on the POS kind of lead gen, bringing the client in. And mm -hmm. obviously it's one of those exercises where if everyone starts buying it up, it's like anything else, it starts, the cost gets higher and higher. Yeah. Right. So we saw that happen, um, you know, when you're bidding up the asset, which is a lead, um, which by the way, is it's like a purchase order. It's not a purchase, right? So it's like you're bidding up a purchase order price to mm -hmm. then get the opportunity or option to close, right? Which is, so it's very expensive when you, when you factor all those, those costs in. Right. Um, so that's, that's one, um, one area that I think has been focused on tremendously and it continues to go through optimizations, but even in that space, all the way through closing, which is where we see a lot of focus today, um, uh, it's really coming down to process improvement. I think at the end of the day, all the tech in the world will not, if you cannot improve the process, it's not going to help. And I think that's really what the yeah. market is asking for. How do I do things better and smarter? Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that the models that are just trying to disrupt the whole, uh, you know, the whole process flow and say, I want everyone to use my system and that's what's going to make the world better. Those ideas are great. There's tons of ideas. I had those ideas when I was, you know, 10 years ago before I even came into this, in this environment, but right. challenging because adoption of, let's say a single system, everything in a vacuum works much better. Uh, you know, if you're solving one problem, but now it creates 10 other problems that I think a yeah. lot of those models are not going to do well. Um, I do see a lot of the, the mortgage lenders, uh, especially that fact that they're going public, feeling the pressure on valuations to start kind of branding themselves as technology companies. Um, the issue with that is the tech valuations are, are based upon the ability to drive recurring revenue from external parties, not from a captive uh, in-house flow. So yeah, it, it'll have a certain benefit to the valuation of, of the mortgage company or the finance company. Uh, in terms of being able to, to bring down the cost of operations, but it's not going to be pari pursue to uh, or at the same level of, of multiple or, or value as the ability for a company like one of ours or any of the other wonderful companies out there that's mm -hmm. just doing great things um, you know, for the market uh, to be able to deliver a broad market solution because mm -hmm. of that ecosystem, the aggregation, the, the overall cost of economies that come down that mm -hmm. one single player, no matter how big they are, could never really mm -hmm. truly rationalize our experience, right? So um, that's that's kind of where, where I, like broadly speaking, you know, what do I think is really cool? I think e-closing is awesome. I do think yeah. that e-closing will bring, uh, and what we're seeing with the numbers that we're reporting, it is bringing 
um, the room to move things faster and yet have more data errors and issues because we're moving faster than, you know, you know, we can go. That's not the e-closing platform's fault. It's the the data being plugged into the e-closing platform's issue, right? So they're yeah. providing the forum in this space and they're saying, okay, get your stuff right and then come see me. But, and I'm going to stitch up all these things together and we're yeah. going to go, we should take X days. We're not going to do this many days. So there has to be better cleaner data coming in, right? Well, I and, think that's a great point about the process too, because whatever technology you use isn't going to make a difference. Crap in equals crap out, right? You can put, people say, oh, everything's going to be on the blockchain. This industry will be fine. There won't be any loan officers. There won't be any realtors. There won't be any uh, title insurance companies. If you put bad information in, it's going to make it even harder if you're using something like that. Exactly. So. You just, uh, you just in, in perpetuity put, uh, put, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And it's yeah. actually more of a problem, right? So it's like, yeah. we've been talking about this too. And we sat at Mesmo's forum a couple of years ago and, mm-hmm. and there's lots of really great applications for blockchain technology in the industry, for sure. There's, there's no doubt about it. But the, the yeah. first and most important thing is the parties and the vendors that are showing up have to be able to provide uh, a level of recourse as well as backing behind their claim right. work or else, again, what do you really yeah. have, right? That's why one of the first things we did was we've offered and we've actually upsized our insurance policies much at our own cost. And now we're basically finding the market. There is an ability in certain market segments to do past, you know, kind of risk-based pricing, um, mm-hmm. you know, specifically kind of the more institutional markets, right? And so with that, it, it, it sells better because people are basically saying, okay, well, they're charging me a little bit more to do exactly what I want and cover all the risks I want. I understand why and I can afford it. That yeah. doesn't really exist in the resi market, as you know, because it's not that, that sort of game. It's a volume game. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, you know, as like any business, but you have to be able to stand behind what you're doing uh, and give true warranties, true recourse, and, and yeah. enhance the recourse structure of your model, mm-hmm. uh, and your client's model. If you can't, you're not going to survive. In my opinion. I just don't, I don't see how it works. And, and and that's why there's so, you know, look at what State's Title is doing. I think that's awesome. I think what they're doing is great um, because they're focusing on improving the process. And because they're focusing on improving the process, they have better definition of data. Yeah. Because they have better definition of data, they can, um, you know, they can uh, charge less and they can be more profitable. And they can also deal with this big issue that, you know, everyone knows, which is from a premium spent versus value earned from a insured. Title industry has got some challenges, right? It, it's a pretty expensive product for a low payout probability if you ever need it. Yeah. And that's why we're so concerned at funding show to make sure that we make sure our clients have that recourse. And we're willing to mm-hmm. stand in and say, hey, any that, that deals with pre-clothing, clothing risk, we're stepping right. in and being able to stand behind that as opposed to just saying, hey, somebody's licensed. That's great, they're licensed. But that doesn't yeah. matter as much as our client to say they're licensed. And I'm willing to say that if they don't apply the money right or they do something wrong, we're going to be here for you to make sure well, you get things right. And there's a reason that there's so much concern over the title agent because that closing process has so much risk. Nothing's happening unless you get through that process. No one's getting paid. That's when money's changing hands. Um, There's just so much happening there. And I think title agents need to embrace that even more than they already do, that this is the last line of defense. Um, I do want to be respectful of your time, but I want to hammer on on kind of one point that you brought up that I'm super always excited to talk about is kind of the, you talked about technology companies, you mentioned state title. Um, It seems interesting now that you have Traditionally in this industry, you had, you know, the service players, the title insurance companies, the mortgage companies buying tech. Now you have tech players like State's Title buying the more traditional service providers. 
um, which I think is really interesting. You have, you know, players like Zillow, who is a technology company, getting into mortgage, getting into title. Um, what do you see, especially with other people like yourself starting companies, trying to be all things to all people? How should they think about, you know, that type of um, specialization? And you touched on it a little bit of there's never going to be one platform for everything. So how do you kind of enter an industry like this when there's so much out there and so much need for that one thing, but you also can't compete with Zillow or Quicken right off the, the book. And I, and I think it's about making sure what you have is, is unique and relevant. And it's also something that, uh, you know, they would have a very hard time given their, you know, kind of position in the transaction, which will be multifaceted in many cases, yeah. what you just said, being a title, being a lender, and also being the real estate kind of exchange or marketplace, whatever you want to call it for, for you know, discovery, buyer, seller, discovery, whatever you want to call it, right? Transaction, mm-hmm. real estate discovery. Um, so I think you have to kind of stay true to what you are doing, what you're delivering, yeah. and not get so kind of I guess this, I don't think disillusioned, but too attracted to like, Hey, there's this big, big opportunity because guess what, with what we're doing, there's so much to wood to chop still. And on top of that, there's so many ancillary spaces that are the payment side of what we do versus on kind of the insurance side of what we do, that there's plenty of room to stay relevant and still be that independent party that is needed, right? There is need for third party validation, right? And and it's, it's not going to go away because the next thing you have is self-attestation, right? Which I, you know, there's so many good things that the trade organizations can do. There's so many good things that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, auditing firms can do, right? Which they bring third-party audit, but they're not auditing every transaction. They're coming in at a point in time. Yeah. The basic idea is there's certain activities and there's certain risks that are better off paying a few dollars to fix right then and there yeah. and deal with after the fact or let go through your workflow. And now you have, bigger problems because it's on thousands of loans uh, and you have potential exposure or risk on thousands of loans. And now regulators come, I mean, it, it spirals, as you know, yeah. one issue becomes two issues, becomes 10 issues. That's and I like the, the way that you described it of someone that's trying to be that, that portal, that, which is almost a dirty word in this industry at this point, or that place where it's a repository for all sorts of transaction or orders you just can never do that because there's so many different parties in there and you're never going to be able to be that one, that one place. I think I like how you summed it up of, you know, you solve one problem, but you're going to create 10 more. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's great. There's some really good players out there in the title space and that mm-hmm. they're, they're super sharp. Um, and they're doing, they're, they're tackling what they know they can do. But even if you look at them and you look at like a Qualia, right. They're not going to be all things to everyone. They're building modules around yeah. certain things. And I think it's really smart what they're doing but they're also not doing what we do and vice versa. We're right. not trying to go do what they, you know what I mean? And, and it's so many other examples of that and not to take mm-hmm. it just from a funding source perspective, but there are certain areas yeah. in the market that are going to be disrupted because they need to be, right? It's just on, yeah. you can't democratize and on one side say, hey, we're all for open markets and we're all for transparency, let the best man win. And then the other side have this oligarchy, you know, kind of oligopoly or, you know, something, you know, which in any other, any other industry would be considered antitrust. And I think you started to see that, right. with, you know, some of the things that are going on in our industry that tech is basically bringing front and center. Now that does create challenges because if there's only one or two primary players driving that kind of disruption, yeah. then it's like, you know, the, the person being disrupted is going to say, well, look at them. They're taking yeah. 30% of the market or they're whatever. Yeah. Right? So long story short, there's going to be a game up here 
right? With the tech gods, right? And there's also, you know, as we know, the, the fangs are coming in now and looking at this market and saying, hey, what can we do here? What can we do there? Yeah. And they're still playing at, you know, literally natural language processing, data processing, words, the mentality of the language being used to discuss and communicate through email channels. They have a great opportunity to play this market from that perspective, which is a natural extension of what they already do anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, is Amazon mortgage showing up tomorrow? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about what- Beat me to the Amazon joke. Uh, yeah, right. We'll so all be working for time, them eventually. Does yeah. Amazon have enough data or, you know, you know, linguistic programs to kind of break down and create logical models to help you automate your processes? Yeah. How much does it cost to develop and deploy? Probably a lot right now, but, yeah. you know, at some point the cost of that will come down and that's right. what we're just- you know, or if, if Amazon gets their eyes on your um, 1009, how much more patio furniture could they sell people? Right, like that kind of model because they already know what you know. If you're if you're, you're what's it called your portal or whatever the hell's on your cube and yeah, exactly. they already know what your wife and you want or what your yeah. you know your family's asking for or what you've been talking about at our home. So you know, a word of advice to all those viewers out there: mute, hit the little mute button, guys. Turn off the microphone. Yeah. Unless, you know. You would suddenly want to come home to like a thousand box, Amazon boxes. Um, yeah. <laughs> they know how to get you. So. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's one of the things I love about this industry is how dynamic everything is and how much everything touches it. Um, and that kind of gets me to my final question of what gets you up in the morning? What's the thing that you are most excited about? Clearly running your own business, doing all those sorts of things, but like what else? What is you know getting you pumped when you're at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. to deal with all of, all of us East Coasters? Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, look, look, I think you hit on the head. It's like the, the work isn't work when you love what you do kind of thing. So that's, that's mm -hmm. a given. But um, I think beyond that, um, it, it's been an interesting journey to go from looking at this as being a finance industry or a, uh, you know, a financial asset industry to really starting to get to a point now with some of the people I've had to meet that, you know, have been blessed with great careers or have had a very specific path in life in wanting to improve housing, um, you know, the ability for housing to be uh, achievable for so many new groups. Um, also thinking about the relative requirement for housing relative to the, the housing finance market, because it's they're two different things. And I think we got to remember that. One is housing, which is an abode, you know, it's a standard of living. It's, a, you know, in most countries, it's, a, a, it's, try, it's trying to be a God-given right, but it's obviously, you know, we have to figure that dynamic out and the financing is supposed to help us achieve that. And sometimes it doesn't, right? So I think yeah. it's really the most exciting part of being in this industry at this level and starting to be our principal and talking to other principals and in the market is a learning and b seeing how this is really, this is really a societal issue. It's a health issue. Yeah, uh, it's a family issue, uh, and it, it really does excite me because at some point I hope to be able to give back more uh, than whatever we're doing today, and, and that's also by you know contributing time. And I, I see so many great examples of that uh, in pretty much every company out there where people. Do really give back to local communities at the federal, local, state level. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, and it's not for uh, power or this or that. It's really to help uh, help try to guide this path of this humongous machine, which is you know the big chunk of our economy. But it really comes down to making sure people have a place to sleep at night and can form yeah. communities and form families and all those sort of most important things that we care about. Right. So that's kind of really what gets me going, to be honest. Uh, yeah, it shifted from. Hey, I want to win. Of course, that's always there, and you want to be the best at what you can do. But right. the other side of it, it's, it's uh, really something that's kind of hit, struck a chord with me that I didn't think I, I would find in this industry. Uh, mm -hmm. and I, yeah, well, I, mean, I think that's a you know beautifully put. I think it's a wonderful point, and it's so easy to get a step removed from that when we're 
you know, at a hotel rooftop in New York with industry <laughs> folks dealing at a secondary conference. Um, I, I grew up in this industry in a title agency. And when I'm, when I'm there, the thing that is still to this day touching to me is I'm working at the office, I'm dealing with, you know, clients, all of that stuff. Then you see the people come in to do a closing probably pre-COVID at this point, but they come in and the excitement and the nervousness and everything around that transaction, which is one of the biggest of their lives is really touching because it makes you realize like, oh, wow, this is like a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true, man. But look, Jim, I uh, appreciate it. Look forward to coming back on and seeing you soon, man. So let us know if you're in California, uh, come out to Newport and visit us. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully we'll uh, do this a little more casually next time with the scotch in our hands, like uh, you had mentioned before. Absolutely. We'll do it later if we can get some scotch. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Adam. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. Please like and subscribe wherever you get this podcast. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes or would like to be a guest, please reach out to us at lendingleaders at lssoftwaresolutions.com. Hope to hear from you.